Every year, neuroscientists come together in a big way at a giant conference of around 20,000 scientists and physician scientists from all sub-disciplines of neuroscience. This year, the annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience, SFN, is in Washington, D.C. You are perhaps getting ready to go there, or you're already in Washington, or you might just not be able to attend. For all those situations, here is a sneak peek of the meeting for you. Along with editors at Springer Nature, I got the chance to ask a bit about the meeting before it starts on November 12th. It was a mashup of a press conference of sorts and a wider discussion with colleagues from Scientific American and from Nature Neuroscience. In this podcast episode, you will hear questions from them and from me and responses by Dr. Oswald Stewart, the president of the Society for Neuroscience, SFN, and Dr. Damien Fair, who is the chair of the SFN Public Education and Communication Committee. Here is Oz Stewart, who is at the University of California, Irvine, at the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory, where he directs the Reeve Irvine Research Center. So basically, uh, the uh, SFN meeting is organized in pretty much the way that it has been for many years. And we're delighted to be continuing the, uh, I guess, uh, resurgence of in-person meetings after two years of downtime. The uh, top of the program, in my opinion, because these are things I did. <laughs> it's the- fine. And oh, by the way, just a quick question. It's There's some things that are going to be hybrid, right? Just I've been asking people about that in these annual yeah. meetings. Okay. Yes, there are some things that are going to be, uh, let's call it not quite hybrid, but available digitally. What we're really trying, maybe I should just say something about that. What we're trying to do here is to make the in-person meeting the centerpiece of everything, because it really is. We've learned over the two years of not having the meeting, not being able to have the meeting, that it is just super important in all respects to have us gather together. That's where... uh, Things happen that we don't understand in, in biology. Humans are humans. They're social. There's just stuff that cannot be replicated uh, virtually. But at the same time, we do want to make good part of the meeting content available uh, to those who can't attend for one reason or another. And actually, one of my goals when I started as president was to really expand the reach of SFN to the extent that we could. Uh, by taking advantage of uh, digital media, making content available to those who, you know, not just couldn't attend this year, but perhaps never could attend. People in uh, under-resourced countries where travel to our meeting is just simply out of the question. So that we've tried to do that, and, and uh, the SFN team has, I think, done a super job of, uh, of putting it together, learning how to do it in a way that's really, I think, quite impactful. That will continue. That includes the, uh, the major lectures and, uh, and some of the symposia. So just maybe a quick summary of the I, I, as president, uh, have the uh, opportunity and responsibility of uh, choosing the uh, lectures for four, uh, the presidential lectures, and I'm really delighted with the uh, lineup this year. It includes people who are uh, doing different aspects of things that I love. For example, uh, spinal cord injury, Zhigong uh, uh, He would be uh, talking about regeneration in the spinal cord. mRNA localization is a, is a field uh, that um, I, I think I can say I uh, helped launch. Uh, and uh, uh, accordingly, uh, Aaron Schumann will be uh, giving one of the presidential lectures. One of the other things that I've really tried to do is, is to span the really 
most of the scope of, of what we call the neuroscience enterprise. And this year, because we're in Washington and because, well, we are, we are responsible for developing things that might benefit mankind, I've also highlighted lectures that, uh, that focus on uh, diseases and disorders. And so we'll have a lecture on the development of therapies, uh, uh, mod gene-modifying therapies for uh, Huntington's disease, uh, the, the trial and failure thereof. And, and so that's really sort of representative of the top. And then the rest of the program is, as usual, represented by fantastic symposia uh, of different types that have been put together by the program committee entirely based on recommendations of the membership. And then, of course, the poster session, which will will again be, uh, I think, quite uh, interesting. I just have a question in in what some of the bigger trends are that you you've seen uh, in sort of the submissions. For example, the role of genetics in neuroscience um, seems to kind of be increasing, but over time, I guess. Also, the use of organoids. Some people love them. Some people have their doubts. I'll give you, you know, the freedom to kind of talk about which, which uh, trends you see. I think that um, one of the interesting trends, or maybe not a trend this year, I would maybe say more coming of age, is um, <clears throat> research on psychedelics. There's been increasing interest, of course, in this for the last many years over the possibility that psychedelics might be actually useful for treating a variety of disorders, uh, uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, syndrome amongst others. And um, I think that there's been a lot of, let's call it quote, positive kinds of studies. And I think one of the trends that, that I think I see is emergence of a more, let's call it skeptical, balanced kind of viewpoints really more going into the scientific rigor aspect of things than uh, the, I guess, more phenomenological, I would call it. So that's a, that's, I think, very typical of fields. Um, you know, there's a, there's a start to it. People are very excited. Those who are the leaders in the field um, are you know, really pushing forward. And then as things mature, there comes a balance. I sense that there's uh, more of a balance coming in this year. So I think we'll see some very interesting and I think scientifically rigorous talks. I mentioned uh, diseases and disorders and our responsibility to uh, really do things to benefit society. And that's certainly one of them. The other one I will mention is really, I think, almost the same kind of thing in terms of new uh, therapy. So again, I, I mentioned the, um, the story on, on uh, really the gene modifying therapies for uh, Huntington's disease, you know, spectacular basic science work, um, years of, of uh, study led to a clinical trial. And then, well, it didn't quite turn out the way it was uh, uh, hoped and sort of back to the drawing board. And again, that's not a, I don't, I don't view that as a failure at all. It's it's um, it's part of the development of science that's quite natural. And uh, so I think that that same kind of thing is being manifested there. And I suspect we'll see some other examples of that. Those really are, uh, you've already mentioned uh, psychiatric disorders. You know, I think in general, our field is, is increasingly getting to the point of having at least a... Um, some understanding of some of the mechanisms and molecular bases of these of these various diseases and disorders and 
of course, th those studies are, are super exciting. So um, identifying genes that predispose or uh, increase risk, uh, those kinds of things have been advancing for the past several years. And again, I think we're going to see some maturation of that. That would be a real, um, real high level view. The other one would be really just basic technologies. Uh, the brain initiative it has been really quite amazing in developing tools and technologies that benefit all of us. Uh, and uh, we'll see a lot of um, examples of that at the meeting where these new technologies are allowing us to answer questions and delve into phenomena that really we've never been able to do in the past. So, you know, that's something that, you know, is uh, it, there's not really any single symposium per se or, uh, or, or, or major lecture on it, but it's sprinkled throughout the meeting, and, and I think it's really very impactful. The conversation about SFN was a group chat, and Gary Sticks from Scientific American asked this question. Do any of you have any comment on um, the vision for um, predictive Alzheimer's? I mean, will in five, 10 years, um, you get start getting a um, an amyloid test or a tau test um, at the same time, maybe in your forties when you start getting cholesterol tests or you know something along those lines, or you know, as with the psychedelics, you know, the, the actual and this goes particularly for ketamine, but. You know, they haven't actually played out as miracle drugs that people, particularly with ketamine, were talking about 10 years ago. So getting back to the um, Alzheimer's blood tests, um, what does can anybody comment on what you see as the vision for them? Well, I'll give, a, I think, maybe a personal viewpoint on that. So. In my opinion, it will depend on whether or not there is a therapy by that time available for people early in disease, uh, early in uh, really very early in the disease. And if so, then that would be it, it, being able to identify those at risk, I think would be of, of use. But if there is no therapy, if there is no possible intervention, I actually think that uh, early early detection, especially if it's not absolutely certain, uh, is not only of little use, but probably uh, counterproductive in many situations. Um, that's my personal viewpoint. Um, and I think the question will be whether or not these amazing therapies that are that are in the pipeline, uh, as we all know, the first was uh, approved this year, but this is really just the tip of the iceberg. And I think we all appreciate that there's a lot more to do. Um, but if there, if there, if some of these therapies come online, then uh, then perfectly appropriate. And I, in my opinion, I'm very excited about some of the things that we're seeing in terms of phospho tau uh, presence in in blood. So I hope that answers your question. I mean, that's it's not a very scientific answer, by the way. I'm <laughs> I'm answering it uh, from the point of view of, I think, society rather than than science per se. But that that would be my answer right now. But it could also relate to um, environment and lifestyle factors too. You know, and absolutely, sure. And that's another issue to the extent that we understand 
how environment and lifestyle could alter disease progression, I think it is highly appropriate. We have some inkling of that right now. Um, things like physical and mental exercise are thought to be important. Socialization is thought to be important. And, you know, those things don't hurt you. So uh, in a sense, why not? But again, I think that if you were talking about a an identification, of, and I'm talking here primarily about, you know, early onset, uh, that would be the one that, that I think would be most problematic in terms of, of early diagnosis if you didn't have any way to intervene. Again, my personal opinion. I mean, conceivably, you could take the test at age 42 um, along with an APOE test and learn that you've got your homozygote and that you might get gene therapy at the age of 50 to knock down the APOE gene. So there, there's a lot of different permutations of it, right? Sure. Absolutely. Dr. Damien Fair was also in this conversation about the Society for Neuroscience annual meeting. He heads SFN's Public Education and Communication Committee, and he's at the University of Minnesota at the Institute of Child Development and also in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Minnesota Medical School, and he directs the Masonic Institute for the Developing Brain. I was actually going to say that just in this last conversation about the about how the environment may impact these long-term trends, um, that's a big one. That's a big topic. It's we're 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 having a, actually we're having a press conference on that topic, you know, um, this year about how you know these kind of anecdotal relationships with with aging and development and brain health around the environment is a, is a big one. So there may be some that particular um, conference may be of interest to folks. I'm very interested in you know um, there's a lot of things that are coming out right now that are beginning to pop around mental health, mental health disorders were, 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 for me, it's like, I feel like it's this, this time where at this particular moment in time, we're just at the, the early stages of the knee where the discoveries are just going to, uh, to blow. They're going to take off in part is because we we've got, um, and there's, I think three or four press conferences that are related to this, that are kind of linking both, kind of from the the basic science and molecular science and animal models all the way up to what we finally have gotten good at with with neuroimaging and non-invasive ways to 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 look at the brain in like very highly reliable ways is like just changing everything you know so we had a press conference on on on, de on depression and mood disorders that I think is it's pretty exciting that folks are that are leveraging some of these techniques that are across all levels that are, that's pretty neat. We're starting to learn some things that's probably going to change the game here within a very short period of time in that space. There's hot topics around like psychedelics, you know, which is, you know, where we're, we're, we're at a phase where I think that the, that the, that folks that, that the neuroscientists and folks at SFN are actually are actually enticed enough to really dig into the science. There's there's a lot of anecdotes about how 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 these um, different types of drugs you know relate to brain and brain health and how they can be used in in a therapeutic sense. But we probably haven't really kicked the tires enough to know really how that how well that is. But there's you can start seeing that kind of work coming out now, and that will be presented at at the at the meeting this year. I'm a developmental person, so I do a lot of work in early child development and in adolescence. So um, the I would say that the 
the with the probably with the start of the ABCD study, which you know is following these twelve, you know twelve thousand kids, you know we're in the seventh year, starting at nine or ten, and following them all the way through adolescence, has just blown up our our understanding of adolescent brain development and um and uh, around stress and screen time and you know things of that that are of, of high interest and that data is starting to now pop a little bit so those are just a few things that i'm like really excited about for this meeting the national academy's report recently or earlier this year actually came out with some comments and some thinking about these labels in genetics, in human genetic studies, race, ethnicity, ancestry, and, you know, how to use them, when not to use them. And I think this sounds like it's still kind of, there's movement happening in this area. I was wondering if you might comment on this also in terms for the manuscript editors and chief editors on this call for published studies, but also how you view this personally, say for journalism or just in outreach and communication. Yeah, this is a oh man, this is this is a tough one, right? Because I think I I don't know if everybody's fully on board yet, but I think what's clear, right, is that that race is right is it's a social construct, you know, it's not really a biological thing, um, and that is we've it's taken a little bit of time for us to kind of break out of that that mentality, you know, um, and but it doesn't mean it's not doesn't there's not societal race features or elements that aren't related to race. Of course, there are, but there's they're social more than they are biology. So like oftentimes when you're, you know, trying to determine like, you know, when should you use it? When should you not use it? It depends on what you're asking. If you're asking questions related to biology and things like that, then it doesn't make a lot of sense because it's not a biological construct, but if it's related to the, the social construct, then it, then it probably does, you know? So that's, you know, that's, it's kind of my view. And I think it's more this, it's beginning to be kind of more the, the standard view. It doesn't mean things aren't, the, the I mean things aren't hard um still and complicated in 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 and that is almost certainty too i think now that once you kind of get to that point and you start realizing this and you start you start kind of viewing your data in this sense there are a few things that will be that i i know will be um some will be presented at the meeting some won't but show how you know, certain types of environmental factors, again, and so- socio demographics can wipe out conti- entire relationships uh, um, um, if if you're not accounting for things correctly. Now, we do have a, a, a new event this year for the press conferences on, on um, the importance of population diversity and kind of workforce diversity in, in making sure we're getting the science right and having lots of examples of how and where, you know, it's essentially critical, you know, and I think in the genetics world in particular, there's been some, some difficult lessons learned after this, their era of big data kind of went live where not all the populations were representative, um, sometimes being convenient and where the findings don't rush to apply to the general population. We're seeing that super clearly now, we like taking leverages for leveraging that information and doing it. um, And, applying some of those lessons to like in the case of neuroimaging and showing how the, it's identical like you can see how things do not rep, do not do not um apply if if you're not taking in, into account of the 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 diversity and the in the general you know the full population so that also means that that we probably have a lot more work to do 
on this topic in even expanding, not just based on like population basis of like North America and other Western countries, but, you know, thinking hard about if we really want to understand how the brain works, we need to, you know, understand how to make sure that everybody's represented. In these conversations, we like to do a nerdy word game. It is in the tradition of questionnaires and a teeny homage to French journalist Bernard Pivot and his talk show Apostrophe, which ran on French television from 1975 to 1990. And later, he had a show called Bouillon de Culture. That show ran from 1990 to 2001. He asked questions like, what is your favorite word and what is your least favorite word? James Lipton in Inside the Actor's Studio used a questionnaire, too, with his interviewees, and that builds on the one Bernard Pivot had. Others do these kinds of questionnaires, too. Pivot has said that his questionnaire builds on questions by the French author Marcel Proust. Some links about this are in the show notes. The questionnaire I do is not as sophisticated as the one Bernard Pivot developed, but the idea is to present interviewees some concepts and for them to give quick impressions of their thinking about these concepts. This time, I did the questionnaire with Dr. Jean Zarate from Nature Neuroscience. So we have this ritual that we do with SFN leadership when they come to chat with us. It's a uh, nerdy word game that Damien has already played. And uh, it's just uh, a way to get a lot of information into very little time. So we'll mention two words. You pick one, please, that resonates more with you. And then we'll move on to the next person. Oz, you might have done this before elsewhere. Damien practiced last year when we did a session with him. Ready? We could start with Damien so it's easier for you. Okay, so start with Damien. I'll go. Um, It's big conferences. Or small conferences. Oh, I hate, I hate, I hate this. Ah, <laughs> uh, it depends. I'm gonna say um, small conferences. Uh, Jean, do you want to go next? Artificial intelligence, insight into the brain, or a great tool? Great tool, right now. <laughs> and I'm answering the same question. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree with Damien. I'm into sizes, so I'm just going to ask this one. Big labs or small labs? Multiple collaborative small labs. Team science. (laughs) (laughs) Look, that's that's a dichotomy I wouldn't wouldn't choose to. uh, I wouldn't choose one or the other. They both serve a very important purpose for different things. Sorry. I know. I'm passing on a lot. What can I say? It's fine. It's fine. You can pass. PhD program, four years or as long as it takes? It's a tough one. I mean, it's, 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 I guess it's as long as it takes, but it, should, it shouldn't take too long. Yeah, as long as it takes. Yeah, I, no, no specific set time, but not unlimited. And after five, too much. How about that? Then we had a few questions from others on the call. Hi, I'm Shari Wiseman. I'm the chief editor of Nature Neuroscience. Um, I actually have two questions. I'm going to start with the harder one first, maybe. It strikes me, I know um, Oz uh, mentioned that we're going to be in Washington, D.C. for the meeting, and it strikes me that we might be there for the U.S. government shutting down, um, because I believe the deadline to fund the government is during the meeting. And I was wondering if, you know, given this context, if you can talk a little bit about 
the society's, you know, advocacy for science and science funding and, and um, you know, sort of what the kind of, I don't know what, what the sort of outlook is or sort of the temperature, the feeling is right now about um, government support for science, not only within the U.S., but, you know, specifically given this context. People are pointing out that the actual government funding uh, ends on the 17th, but I would imagine there will be rumblings as there often are in Washington. Yeah, I, I think that goes without saying. Um, you know, we're, I have to say, in a very interesting time in so many different ways. It, we, we seem to just, in every in every aspect of things, be going from crisis to crisis, and this is certainly another one. Um, you know, I, I, we, we can't talk about support for science until the government's running. We can't really talk about for support for science until there's uh, some kind of an established and stable leadership in the House of Representatives. Um, I, I have no guess uh, as far as how this is going to go. Um, what I will say is that traditionally support for science has not been as big a target uh, for budget cuts as have a lot of other things. Um, but, you know, uh, it, that's been the past. And <laughs> we we are not in a situation right now where the past is a very good predictor of anything. Yeah, fair point. My other question is a little bit easier, maybe, or a, a little less fraught. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm familiar with your work as just, you know, beautiful electron micrographs and very sort of basic cell biology. And I was wondering kind of how you see the role of that kind of basic science in sort of today's neuroscience world where there's so much kind of big data and team science and um, kind of omics and, you know, these kinds of massive data sets. What's the role for, you know, uh, an individual kind of, you know, doing biochemistry or cell biology, you know, on a smaller scale? Yeah, well, thanks for your comment, first of all. Um, I, you know, these basic things will continue to be essential. Omics and big science generates uh, ideas, new hypotheses. They're incredibly important um, new directions that come from that. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, when you're really delving down into testing those hypotheses, it's kind of back to the bench, you know? No matter what the big science will tell you about uh, probabilities, um, uh, really being able to uh, disprove uh, an hypothesis, which is the only thing that you can really accomplish in science, um, takes hard-nosed, rigorous, often basic science. Um, and I, I don't think, that, I, I think all these things, you know, I, I hate to be, I hate to be answering all your questions by, well, they all are important, but it's true. Sorry, it is true. I think yeah, that's was, as it should be for the president of the society. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would just say that I, I completely agree. It's like they're all different aspects or different layers and different um, levels of, of understanding that are required for progress. And so you need it all. You know, I think the key for us and our challenge, which is which I think is getting better in part because we're the labs are becoming so much more interdisciplinary and collaborative. Um, is that how is the, how do you communicate across those different levels of um, exploration? Um, and that that's really critical for really putting all the all everything into context, which is, you know, you know, part of, you know, the brain initiative and 
that type of progress has done a pretty good job. But I think you can kind of see it beginning to grow a little bit more because our the the lab, the general structure of how our labs are set up and how we interact and communicate, which is by nature, it has to be now. Every you know, the labs just have to be leveraging everybody's different expertise to be to do some of the big things will help with that endeavor. The next question came from Dr. Elisa Floridia from Nature Neuroscience. Hopefully, I see Elisa, you've raised your hand. Um, yeah, I mean, Damien kind of answered already, but um, I was following up on that, you know, um, because neuroscience in the in the almost 100 years that neuroscience existed has, has grown immensely. And yes, I was wondering exactly how you think communication and collaboration among different scientists with different expertise is improving. And this is, you know, computational biologists versus um, cell molecular biologists, but also, you know, uh, system biology versus clear biology and these sort of things. What are the, the trends or the changes, for instance, in PhD programs that, or interaction or setup of collaborations that are happening to make sure that all levels communicate correctly. My, my personal belief on this, and I've, I've, I've loved to see how, how you know other folks answer, but I is that the the lot of right right now our the kind of the kind of collaboration, the kind of melding of different kind of expertise is kind of happening organically because our, us as neuroscientists. Um, want to answer big questions and now it becomes almost a necessity where you're you know you're pulling pulling different people from different spaces to do answer big things um and i'm not as sure like our our institutions are probably a little bit behind that um that that trajectory which is kind of happening naturally where how our grants are set up you know how how people are promoted you know, all all of the things that kind of drive academia maybe is, isn't quite as isn't there, but I can see it already, like in changing of the promotion guidelines and things like this around team science and how to collaborate and, how, and what constitutes as a, you know, as a win, you know, on your CV and things like that. It's it's beginning, but I, I think that the, what's driving it is actually the science and, and then what will probably come behind is the, is the the rules, you know, in, in our institutions. Yeah, I'll just maybe add a couple of things. Um, the you, you ask about the institutions and what they're doing to try to prepare students for what is happening right now. And I'm, you know, I think back to when I was a student, I got my PhD. I thought I, you know, knew, knew my field pretty well. I mean, you know, uh, such as it was at that time. If if that if that me was somehow transported to the future and sitting in my lab meetings, that me would not understand a word <laughs> that's being said. So um, what that means is that the important thing I think that is being recognized is that we have to train students how to learn, how to actually advance their understanding based on an expertise that will be outdated very quickly. And, and that's different than it used to be. You know, the facts are less important than it is the the method of um, of how we understand those facts and and get new ones. So institutions are trying to work on this. I don't think they've quite succeeded yet, uh, but that's just one aspect of the problem. That was conversations with scientists. 
Today's episode was with Dr. Oswald Stewart, the president of the Society for Neuroscience, SFN. He is at the University of California, Irvine, at the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory, where he directs the Reeve Irvine Research Center. And you heard Dr. Damien Fair, who heads SFN's Public Education and Communication Committee. He is at the University of Minnesota at the Institute of Child Development and also in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Minnesota Medical School. And he directs the Masonic Institute for the Developing Brain. You also heard from others, Dr. Sherry Wiseman, Chief Editor of Nature Neuroscience, Dr. Jean Zarate and Dr. Elisa Floridia, both senior editors at Nature Neuroscience, and Gary Sticks from Scientific American. The music in this podcast is Billiard Balls by Raw, licensed from artlist.io. Thank you to the SFN communications team for helping to make this conversation happen. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, nobody paid for this podcast and nobody paid to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism that I produce in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening.